Bible or an iPhone or something like that. Please turn to the Gospel of Luke, chapter 24. I'll be reading Luke 24, verses 44 through 49. Then Jesus said to them, These are My words that I spoke to you while I was still with you, that everything written about Me in the Law of Moses and the prophets and the Psalms must be fulfilled. Then He opened their minds to understand the Scriptures and said to them, Thus it is written that the Christ should suffer and on the third day rise from the dead, and that repentance and forgiveness of sins should be proclaimed in His name to all nations beginning from Jerusalem. You are witnesses of these things. And behold, I am sending the promise of My Father upon you. But stay in the city until you are clothed with power from on high. Father, I pray that every one of us in here have our eyes opened to understand the Scripture. And to understand particularly these words of the resurrected Lord Jesus to His disciples and to us. To the glory of His name, to the joy of our hearts, and to the joy of those who have not yet heard. We pray. Amen. As we pay close attention to the experiences of the eyewitnesses of Jesus' resurrection, one would have to work really hard to not be overwhelmed with the centrality and the importance of the written Word of God. For the Christian life and for missions. Remember the context? Here's Jesus post-death transformed, resurrected, glorified human body and soul teaching His disciples. And what does He do? He says, guys, what you are experiencing right now, though it's freaking you out, is real. Touch Me and see. I'm flesh in bones, you're talking to a real, resurrected man. And you're my witnesses. And he says, and all of this experience is right there in your Bibles. In the text of Scripture. You guys, you apostles, who are my chosen witnesses, your authority 
is what was written long before you were born. The Scripture is the authority for all truth, for all doctrine, for all living, for all practice. I think the feeling of many Christians in the world today can go something like this. If, if only Jesus would appear to me in His resurrected body and let me reach out and touch His hands so that I can have this assurance, then I would really have what I need. I would be spiritually energized. No, you wouldn't. If you don't believe Moses and the prophets, you won't believe if someone rises from the dead. Those are Jesus' words. Not mine. If you don't believe and absorb and walk by Moses and the prophets and the Psalms and the epistles, and you're not doing that now, then you would still be the same God-ignoring, Christ-neglecting person you were before He appeared to you. Jesus makes the point in our text that He is the topic of all Scripture. And if we really love Jesus, then we will love the Scripture. And we will hunger to understand it as we hunger for our favorite foods. So are you there in Luke 24 with a real Bible? <laughs> Paper? Okay. See, if you have that right now, you could see the whole 24 chapter of Luke. And you can, again, be reminded that Luke has three large sections of resurrection appearances. And here's the kicker in Luke. All three of those resurrected appearances of Jesus focus on the Word of God. Remember the women at the tomb? It's empty. An angel appeals to them and says, remember how Jesus told you He spoke words. While He was still in Galilee, that the Son of Man must be delivered into the hands of sinful men and be crucified and on the third day rise. Remember! And then Luke says, and they remembered His words. In the second resurrection appearance that He gives us, Jesus rebuked the two disciples on the road to Emmaus, starting with verse 25, saying, O oh, foolish ones and slow of heart to believe all, all that the prophets have spoken. Was it not necessary that the Christ should suffer these things and enter into His glory? And beginning with Moses and all the prophets, Jesus interpreted to them in all the Scriptures the things concerning Himself. 
And now we're in the third resurrection appearance. And Luke shows us that Jesus sits down. He's not going anywhere. And He teaches them. And He lets us know this resurrected second person of the Trinity, God become man, teaches them by opening up the book that He has memorized. Points to it. Showing them that what they're experiencing now and had been experiencing throughout walking with Him was written in all the Old Testament text. So if you're there in verse 44... Enter that room like we did last week and sit with the disciples and just think. This has to be one of the most teachable moments in history, doesn't it? They're stunned. They've touched Him. They see the holes in His hands. And Jesus says to them, these are My words that I spoke to you while I was still with you. What words, Jesus? He's going to repeat them. That everything written about Me in the Law of Moses, in the Prophets, in the Psalms must be fulfilled. It's as if He's saying, guys, now that You have experienced all this culminating with My resurrection. It's been fulfilled. Now, open up your Bible and look again at the written Word. It's all there. It was written as I told you, but you couldn't get it. It must be fulfilled what God foretold about My suffering. Death and resurrection. And then Luke inserts this stunning line in verse 45. Then He opened their minds to understand the Scriptures. Even though these were His devoted followers who traveled with Him and learned from Him for a couple of years. A spiritual veil blinded them from really grasping the truth. Luke has already let us know that. Back in chapter 9, Luke writes, but they did not understand this saying. And it was concealed from them so that they might not perceive it. Now, just stop for a moment. You've got to get this. It's not that Jesus spoke in Russian. And they don't know Russian. I don't, he spoke, but I don't know what He's saying. They understood the words of Aramaic. Like you're understanding my English words now. They could have repeated it back to Him, but there's a sense in which they didn't grasp it. It didn't compute. 
something was blocking it. Or Luke tells us again in chapter 18, they understood none of these things about His death and resurrection. And he says again, this saying was hidden from them and they did not grasp what Jesus said. And now in this room, sitting there teaching them in His resurrected body, it's as if He's saying, now with all the historical events of my ministry, my suffering, my death, and my resurrection, now you're ready to connect all of that with the Old Testament to see that it was there all along. Now, I just want to spend a little bit of time because what I don't want you to do is misread Jesus' words here. He opened their mind to understand. In other words, thinking that what He did was... If he had a scroll of the Old Testament there, to don't think that what he meant, this text means by opening our minds, was to say, I know it says this on the page, but let me open your minds to get you some esoteric, deeper meaning that's below the words, not actually on the page. That's not what he did. For, have you ever tried explaining to somebody something. You say it, you write it. You're trying to communicate meaning and frustratingly, okay, that didn't work. They didn't get it. They're not understanding what I'm saying. We've all experienced it. What's happening? Communication is hard for one, but there something is blocking the person from understanding what you mean by the words you wrote or spoke. Maybe they have particular presuppositions about the subject you're speaking about that you don't share and you don't know that yet and it's just really blocking them from getting what you're saying. Maybe they have a different cultural experience or context and you don't know that. It's blocking their understanding. Maybe... A few words that you use, they have total diff totally different meanings to those words and they're reading those meanings into the words you use that you never meant. You don't know. Something's blocking their understanding. Maybe in personal relationships right now, they're angry at you and they have a hard heart towards you and they're not hearing a word. You're saying, whatever it is, here's the point. Something has to happen. Those barriers to understanding have to be removed for them to understand what you mean by what you spoke or wrote. Now here's my point. What has to happen is not that I would open that person's mind to see understanding in the words that is not there in the words originally. That's not. Does that make any sense? What I need to do. Now, so the point now of this text, he opened their minds to understand the Scriptures, is not that Jesus gave them secret meaning that is not there on the pages of Scripture originally. Scripture means what the author intended it to mean then why does it say He opened their minds 
to understand. Let me try to get at it this way. The Scripture understood in its context throughout to understand what it plainly is saying has such radical implications for my lifestyle that we sinful human beings would do anything to deceive ourselves in really grasping it. As the Apostle Paul said in 2 Corinthians 4.4, and even if our Gospel is a message preach, even if our Gospel is veiled, as if, here it is, let me write something to you. Read it! And you got this dark cloth hanging over their eyes. They get nothing out of it even though they can read the words. Even if our Gospel is veiled, it is veiled only to those who are perishing. In their case, the God of this world, Satan, has blinded the minds of the unbelievers in order to keep them from seeing the light of the Gospel of the glory of Christ. In other words, what Paul is saying, when we preach the Word of God, when we read the Bible, there is this message of absurdity that God, the Creator, became a human being and died as a substitute bearing the wrath of God for others. In that on the third day He rose from the dead to never die again. True humanity, body and soul. And if you believe this message, if you will repent and turn to Him, you will be saved from the wrath to come. We preach that message. And what happens? Blind, hard, Dead hearts will never be changed by that message. That's what Paul means in 1 Corinthians 1 when he says, I, I travel throughout the Roman Empire bringing the Gospel of Jesus Christ to places who have never heard the Gospel. I come and I preach Christ crucified. I go to the synagogues. I go to the Jews first. And to them, it's a stumbling block. They fall flat on their faith. It doesn't fit their religion. I preach it to non-Jews, the Greeks. And to them, they hear it well enough and laugh and say it's foolish. That's what a dead heart responds to the Word. It, it sees it. It hears it enough to understand what you're saying so they can laugh at it. So it's not that it doesn't understand in that sense. It's that it doesn't get it for the truth that it is. That's why Paul then said, but to those who are called from among both Jews and Greeks or Gentiles, to them in the message something happens. Christ becomes the power of God 
and the wisdom of God. Their understanding, having their minds open, isn't that they couldn't articulate what Paul preached or what Jesus said. They could repeat it back to you in their own language. But they don't understand it in the way they have to understand it as the truth and the beautiful truth that it is. You see, it's one reason, especially over these last 50 years in American pop, evangelical culture, this idea of how can we be more clever? How can we learn to be better salesmen of the message of Jesus? How can we dress up the message of Christ crucified so that we can say it this way to that target audience? That will never remove the blinders of hearts. That's not our job. That's the Lord's job. Our job is to be faithful ambassadors of the message. Listen to how Paul speaks of this about family members of his and old friends of his and and how he was before coming to Christ. He was a Bible guy. And he says this in 2 Corinthians 3 about people who have blinders on. But their minds were hardened. For even to this very day, as I write this letter, when they, my fellow Jews, read the Old Covenant, the Hebrew Scripture, the Old Testament, the same veil remains unlifted because only through Christ is it taken away. Yes, to this day, whenever Moses first five books of the Bible, is read, a veil lies over their hearts. But when one turns to the Lord, the veil is removed. So let me just say this to you. We are desperate for the work of the Holy Spirit in our lives as professing believers. We're not desperate for the Holy Spirit to speak to me and tell me what the Bible really means. No. Learn how to read well. That's how you get it, what the Bible means. What we're desperate for is, God, melt my heart. Because, first of all, I'm approaching the Bible as a Christian. Therefore, I look at it for the authority that it is, and that's threatening. And when my heart is hard, oh, it is amazing how I won't want it to say about me, my sin what it actually says. That's the barrier we constantly need removed in our lives so we don't pervert the Word of God as we read it or teach it or preach it. And so Jesus, according to Luke, opened their minds to understand the Scripture. Oh, He Spirit did something in their heart. 
And that's the dynamic combination of the Christian life. The Scripture. It was there long before these guys were born. 400 years before that Scripture was complete. It doesn't change its meaning. The Scripture and the work of the Holy Spirit illuminating the heart, causing that, that, that Psalm 118, open my eyes that I may love Your Word, delight in Your law. See the beauty of it and thus receive it for what it says. So let's go back to the room. Picture these Apostles sitting there at the feet of Jesus, resurrected, not only then, but many times, hours upon hours, Jesus was giving them Bible lessons for a period of six weeks. The master teacher of Holy Scripture. And you've got to know that these lessons during these weeks surely became the biblical substance of their apostolic preaching. When they preached, whether they had one in hand, it wasn't like as easy today with scrolls. They had it in their minds, in their memory, and they went to text after text after text of what is written when they preached. The Gospel of Jesus. So let's just... Gosh, I get nervous here with time. But here's Jesus. The text says, what did He do? He taught them from the Torah. That's the books of Moses. Genesis, Exodus, Leviticus, Numbers, and Deuteronomy. He taught them from the prophets. Isaiah and Jeremiah, Micah, and Habakkuk, and Jonah. He, he taught them from the Psalms and the pen of David and others. Notice verse 46. And He said to them, about the Bible, the Old Testament, this, thus it is written, that the Christ should suffer and on the third day rise from the dead. The Gospel preaching about Jesus was always connected to the crucial background of the exposition of the Old Testament. This is exactly how Paul summarized it in 1 Corinthians 15 when he wrote, Now I would remind you, brothers, of the Gospel I preached to you that Christ died for our sins in accordance with the Old Testament. Scriptures. That He was buried and that He was raised on the third day in accordance with the Scriptures. So I, I don't ever want to assume. So if you don't know, while Jesus is speaking, two-thirds of this book called the Holy Bible what we call the Old Testament, was completed 400 years before He was born. That's what He's referring to. 
So he opens up uh, the law, for instance. So where is this gospel in the law? It's all over, but just a couple touches. He sits there and he says, Guys, I am the seed of the woman. I have crushed Satan's head under my foot. Oh yes, it bruised my heel. You saw me suffer and die. But I have come to destroy the works of the devil. And their eyes are popping open. Or guys, Noah and those eight people saved from God's wrath upon the earth in the ark. Don't you know, yes, it happened, but it's also a picture of the eternal wrath of God. Guys, the Christ is the ark of salvation from God's wrath forever. Or you can turn to Exodus and the blood of animals to be shed. That we're constantly pointing to the day when God's Messiah, the Christ, would come and shed His blood. For centuries, blood flowed in the tabernacle and in the temple pointing to the Lamb of God. As, as the Holy Spirit would later have the writer to the Hebrews pen it this way, for if the blood of bulls and goats and the sprinkling of defiled persons with the ashes of a heifer. There he is. He's going to the books of Moses. If that sanctifies for the purification of the flesh outwardly, how much more will the blood of Christ who through the eternal Spirit offered Himself without blemish to God purify your inners, your conscience from dead works to serve the living God? God. Surely, surely Jesus took them again to the Passover lamb. Guys, you remember that night when every Israel household was to slaughter the lamb and put the blood on the doorpost? That's why a few days earlier at the Last Supper, Jesus made it clear the Passover was referring ultimately to Him. This is My body. This is My blood. As He said to them, I have earnestly desired to eat this Passover with you before I suffer. For I tell you, I will not eat it until it is fulfilled in the Kingdom of God. And then from there, Jesus with His disciples proceeded outside the gates and He proceeded to fulfill the Passover to the letter as a male in His prime, unblemished, without any defect. And in the process of His sacrifice, not one of His bones were broken. Moses, Exodus 12. So Jesus could look at these guys and He could say, guys, just as it took faith for the Israelites to apply the blood and be saved from the judgment of God in Egypt that night. So now as you go, preach this Gospel. And those who believe 
will have that blood applied to them and be saved from the wrath of God forever. I am the Passover lamb. As Paul would later write in 1 Corinthians 5-7, For Christ, our Passover lamb, has been sacrificed. Surely Jesus pointed them in Moses to the tabernacle. The tabernacle preached Christ everywhere. And at the center of the tabernacle in the temple was the Ark of the Covenant and on top the mercy seat with the cherubim where the blood was to be sprinkled on the Day of Atonement every year. And the root of that word mercy seat when it comes over to the Greek is the same root for the word propitiation, the Greek word hilasterion. And so Paul will write, it is Christ was put forward as our mercy seat, as our propitiation, where the justice of God against sinners was satisfied in the Messiah. In me. And John would later write in 1 John 2, if anyone does sin, we have an advocate with the Father. Jesus Christ the righteous. He is our propitiation for our sins. Christ and His blood and His suffering was all over Moses. No wonder Jesus said, everything written about Me in the law of Moses, that the Christ should suffer and rise again. Resurrection is there. If you remember back in chapter 20, Jesus embarrassed the resurrection-denying Sadducees when He said, Moses taught the resurrection! Here's His words. But that the dead are raised, even Moses showed in the passage about the bush where He calls the Lord, the God of Abraham, the God of Isaac, and the God of Jacob, Do you see it? He is not the God of the dead, but the God of the living. So much more in Moses. He who goes to the prophets, don't worry, I won't be long, like Jesus was long, but He went to the prophets in His death, His resurrection, were written there. Of course, most Explicitly, we know, is Isaiah 53 where it is in detail about the sufferings of Jesus. About His suffering on behalf of others. About God the Father being pleased to cause Him to suffer for the sins of others. And we know that on the night before He was killed, Jesus clearly said, Isaiah 53 is about me. When he quoted the last verse of Isaiah 53, saying, For I tell you that this Scripture must be fulfilled in me. Quote, And he was numbered with the transgressors. For what is written about me has its fulfillment. The prophet Isaiah drips with the blood of Jesus. And when Jesus said in verse 46 of our text, 
Thus it is written that the Christ should suffer and on the third day rise from the dead. He apparently had the prophet Hosea in chapter 6, verse 2 in mind. After two days, He will revive us. On the third day, He will raise us up that we may live before Him. Now, that was written to sinful Israel and there's nothing in Israel's history that corresponds to that text except when Jesus rose from the dead on the third day. And thus, by so doing, He raised believing Israel with Him. And this Gospel, it's all over the Psalms according to Jesus. Just picture. Just got, just, let's sit down with these apostles. The resurrected Jesus with holes in His hands. We're still in shock. And He says to us, you all know the psalm. You sing it. Remember how it goes? He wouldn't have put the numbers to it like we do. They didn't have numbers. But we would say it this way. Psalm 22. And they're listening and He begins to quote it. My God. My God. Why have You forsaken Me? And John is stunned. As he relates those very words to what Jesus cried out on the cross. And Jesus goes on to quote the psalm to them. You remember, guys, how the psalmist goes on? I am a worm and not a man, scorned by mankind and despised by the people. All who see Me mock Me. They make mouths at Me. They wag their heads. He trusts in the Lord. Let Him deliver Him. Let Him rescue Him. For He delights in Him. And the disciples' minds flash back to that horrific Friday as they witnessed just that all day long. And Jesus continues to quote the psalm, For dogs encompass Me, a company of evildoers encircles Me. They as He says to them, putting out His hands, they have pierced My hands and feet. I can count all My bones. They stare and gloat over Me. They divide My garments among them. And for My clothing they cast lots. And He says, you know all this, guys. You witnessed it. But the psalm doesn't end there. Do you remember what David went on to say after such horrific suffering? I will tell of your name to my brothers. In the midst of the congregation, I will 
praise You. As Jesus says to them, Brothers, I'm doing that right now in my resurrection. They are in stunned ecstasy as Jesus opens the Scriptures. Surely Jesus turned them to Psalm 16 and said, guys, do you know the psalm? You remember when David wrote, For you will not abandon my soul to Hades, or let your Holy One see corruption. You know David died, right? And his body rotted. Don't you see how David was a pawn in the hand of the Lord as a prophet and he spoke of his son? The promised Son of David. And Peter hears this. Peter's mind grabbed hold of Psalm 16. A few weeks later, with Bible in his mind and in his heart, and being empowered by the Spirit in his very first public sermon before thousands here took Jesus' teaching and preached. Let's just get a taste of it as I pick it up in Acts chapter 2. Peter says, And God raised Jesus up, loosing the pangs of death because it was not possible for Him to be held by it. And remembering the psalm that Jesus taught. For David says concerning Him, quote, I saw the Lord always before me, for He is at my right hand that I may not be shaken. Therefore my heart was glad and my tongue rejoiced. My flesh also will dwell in hope, for you will not abandon my soul to Hades or let your Holy One see corruption. You have made known to me the paths of life. You will make me full of gladness with your presence. And he's done quoting the psalm to his fellow Jews, and he says, Brothers, I may say to you with confidence about the patriarch David that he both died and was buried and his tomb is with us to this day. Being therefore a prophet and knowing that God had sworn with an oath to him that he would set one of his descendants on the throne, David foresaw and spoke about the resurrection of the Christ, that He was not abandoned to Hades, nor did His flesh see corruption. This Jesus God raised up. And of that we are all witnesses. We can go on and on and on throughout the Old Testament. But the point is here now. During these weeks, Jesus opened the Bible. And their hearts burned as Jesus expounded the Scripture. And listen to what else Jesus expounded in the Scripture. 
Back to verse 46 of our text. And thus it is written, Jesus says, that the Christ should suffer and on the third day rise from the dead and, this is also what the Scripture teaches, that repentance and forgiveness of sins should be proclaimed in His name. So He says forgiveness of sins is to be Proclaim this is the Gospel. This is the good news of how sinners can be reconciled to God. In other words, to have God wipe the slate clean forever. That's the Gospel. If we could do enough moral improvement and performance if we could do enough obedience, good works, then Jesus the Eternal One would never had to have become a human being and suffer and die and rise from the dead. But by His death, He paid the penalty for our sins. So that forgiveness, so that eternal pardon would be granted. As Paul writes, there is therefore now no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. But now watch what Jesus says. Okay, who are these people who are forgiven? The answer is those who repent. As the Scripture teaches, Suffering, the death, the resurrection, and that from that, preach it. That repentance for forgiveness of sins should be preached. What's that mean? It means it's to those who hear the message of this glorious good news and have a change of heart. A change of mind about truth. Change of life that flows out of their new heart. In other words, as this message of the Gospel gets preached down through the ages, all we who have been born into sin, which is every one of us, are like we're on a, a conveyor belt. You know, like in a, an airport. What are they? Move, people movers? You just stand there. and We're just all moving that way. And the Gospel comes and says, Repent. Turn to the Savior God sent. He suffered and died for the sins of all who will have Him. Turn and embrace the Lord Jesus Christ. And what happens is, people hear it and they stand on the people mover and plunge off into eternity. And others repent. They jump off, they turn, and they embrace Him. That's the Gospel. repentance means metanoia, turn, switch, change of mind, a change of affections in the heart. It is to turn to God. To turn to the Savior from our lifestyle of sin that we once loved more than 
than God. Oh, we still sin. But those who have come to that saving repentance, it's different. Something is radically different. Say it this way. Repentance is not added to faith any more than tells is added to the coin of heads. It's a coin. It has a heads and it has a tails. The response of those whom God calls to Himself is a saving response. A faith. Just turned over. It's repentance. They can't be separated. See, see, that's why throughout the New Testament especially, and especially throughout Luke, in his Gospel and in his second book, Acts, faith and repentance are absolutely interchangeable for him. I, I just... I have to let you hear the Bible here. So, in Acts chapter 2, verses 37 to 38, we read, Peter preached, right? And now, when they heard this, the Gospel, they were cut to the heart and said to Peter and to the rest of the apostles, Brothers, what shall we do? And Peter said to them, Repent and be baptized every one of you in the name of Jesus Christ for the forgiveness of your sins. Or in chapter 3 of Acts, verses 17-19, to we read, And now, brothers, I know that you acted in killing Jesus. You acted in ignorance, as did also your rulers. But God, but what God foretold by the mouth of all the prophets that His Christ would suffer, He thus fulfilled. Okay, now watch. Now what? Therefore, He gives them a command. Therefore, repent and turn again so that your sins may be blotted out. In Acts 5.31, we read, God exalted Him at the right hand as leader and Savior in order to give repentance to Israel and forgiveness of sins. In Acts 11.18, after finding out what God did with Peter at Cornelius' house, the Gentiles, we read, when they heard these things, they fell silent and they glorify God, saying, Then to the Gentiles also, God has granted repentance that leads to life. In Acts 20, verse 21, Paul says, You remember how from house to house I was testifying both to Jews and to Greeks? What does Paul testify in his Gospel ministry? I was testifying to... Repentance towards God and faith in our Lord Jesus Christ. 
in Acts 26.20, but I declared first to those in Damascus, then in Jerusalem, and throughout all the region of Judea, and also to the Gentiles, that they should repent and turn to God, performing deeds in keeping with repentance. The Gospel, this glorious news of Christ, then beckons, turn to Me. Come to Me! All you who are burdened and heavy laden with your sin, I'll give you rest. Let me just say it one more way then. To repent means that in the hearing of the Gospel, the light went on. Your eyes were opened and it shined on your heart and it caused you to see the reality of your sinfulness which led you to lay aside that barrier of pride and caused you to stop trusting in your religiosity, in your good works to get yourself to God, but instead you turned and embraced the offer of God's mercy in Jesus Christ. And you find yourself thus on a new path beginning to despise your remaining sin and sin nature until you die. And this leads during this mortal life to a new walk of desiring the joy of God Himself more than these besetting, temporal, tempting pleasures of a sinful life pattern. That's long enough pause. Now, when a person in the hearing of the Gospel, some of you know when it happened, others you're not sure, it doesn't matter. You know you love Jesus. And you're real then. But there's a moment where faith arises at that very moment all of your sins have been remitted. Christ's righteousness has been laid upon your shoulders. It's called justification by faith. That happens instantly at the moment of faith arising. At the moment you receive Christ. At the moment of embracing. See, the Bible talks all kinds of ways of this experience with different terms. And that is an absolute free gift that one receives as they on the conveyor belt say, that makes sense. And that sounds good. I cannot not jump off this thing. Thank you, Jesus. And you wrap your arms around the Savior. Moses taught it. The prophets taught it. The psalmist taught it. And Jesus confirmed it. Okay, almost done. Verse 46 again. Thus it is written that the Christ should suffer and on the third day rise from the dead and that repentance and forgiveness of sins should be proclaimed in His name to all nations. Jesus just said the Old Testament was clear. 
salvation is to go not just to the Jew, but to everybody else. And we have time, but just, just one. At the very founding of the Jewish people in the call of Abraham, it was right there. As God says to Abraham in Genesis 12, And I will make you a great nation, and I will bless you and make your name great. And in you, all the families. The Septuagint, the Greek translation is the same word for Gentiles. That's what nations mean, or Gentiles mean. The nation. And all the Gentiles of the earth shall be blessed through Abraham. And that promise was accomplished through Abraham's descendant. Through the seed of Abraham named Jesus from Nazareth. That's how the Apostle Paul explained it in Galatians chapter 3, verse 16. Now the promises were made to Abraham and to his Literally, sperma, seed or offspring. Paul goes on. It does not say, and to offsprings, referring to many, but referring to one, and to your offspring, who is Christ. Jesus is the mediator of the promise that was made to Abraham. And that blessing extends to every tribe, people, tongue, nation, culture, to all the Gentiles. Among them, every person who hears and believes. It's everybody. Every, from the Jews and from the Gentiles. As they come to the offspring, Jesus. So Paul concludes chapter 3 of Galatians. And so, if you belong to Christ, uh, who? Well, he just said, whether you're a Jew or a Gentile, whether you're slave or whether you're free, you're rich, you're poor, whether you're male or whether you're female, if you belong to Christ, then you are Abraham's offspring. And thus, you are heirs according to promise. Can you picture Jesus? He's got to sit. He's looking. Peter, Bartholomew, do you see it yet? And we can go on and on. Go to Isaiah. I have made you a light for the Gentiles that you may bring salvation to the ends of the earth. And it's all over the prophets and the Psalms. We don't have time. On and on. Finally, verse 49. Behold, Jesus says, Guys, I like that word. I'm sending the promise of my Father upon you. But stay in the city of Jerusalem until you are clothed with power from on high. It's true for them and it's true for us. This book 
not sitting there physically, but the meaning that is derived at through reading the words carefully is crucial for your life. And it's crucial for the salvation of others that God wants to reach. But it's not enough. Wait, guys. It's not just doctrine, but real, intimate connection with the Savior by the indwelling and overflowing power of God the Holy Spirit is needed for your work. And so I want us, if we hear nothing else this morning, listening to the resurrected Lord Jesus in that room, hear Him say to you, I, the resurrected Lord of heaven and earth, I always point you to the written Word. May we be a people who love the Gospel. May we be devoted to the resurrected Jesus by being devoted to seeking to grasp and understand and be changed by and love the Bible. And as we sing, if you are a baptized believer, you may partake of the elements, hold them, we'll pray over them together. And what we are doing is this. We will be demonstrating this resolve. God opened my heart to see and to love the truth of Holy Scripture again this week as we will tangibly again partake of the Lord's Supper.